Okay, if you got a Bible, uh, well, before you get your Bible out, I want to ask the kids to rise and go back with Mr. Nick and go back to the classroom. I just want to say thank you to all the volunteers we have working in our kids' ministry. You guys are awesome, and our kids are really benefiting from all the great work that our volunteers do. So thank you, volunteers, for all that you, you guys are doing. All right, so please turn your Bibles to Ezra chapter 1. We are in a new series called The Road to Renewal, which is a study in the book of Ezra. Now, while you're turning there or thinking about Ezra, I got to be honest with you, before this series, I had never heard of any church doing a series in Ezra. Never. I don't think I'd ever heard a sermon in Ezra. And the reason why is because Ezra is usually paired with Nehemiah, and Nehemiah is just perceived as being a cooler guy. I mean, Nehemiah is this big, tough guy who, you know, goes in and, and just seizes control and builds a wall. But I will tell you, there's some serious gold here in this book of, of Ezra. Even though Ezra has a lot of lists in it and a lot of inventories of things in it and a lot of lists of people, uh, there's, some, there's some great stuff here. So uh, we're going to look at um, the first four verses, and uh, the title of this message is, Even in Our Darkness, God is in Control. And Ezra has a main idea, and, and the main idea of this book that we'll be seeing throughout the entire book is simply this. God's people can experience renewal after a season of pain if they do one thing, and that one thing is prioritize worship. I'm not talking about just coming to church on a Sunday. That's an important thing. But I'm talking about worship as being a whole life response to the God of the universe. It's weaving God into every nook and cranny of your life. And so the main application we're going to see in this book is that you and I can experience significant transformations even after a season of wandering if we will prioritize worship. Worship is a response to our, of our entire life over to God. And so we want to look at that throughout, throughout this book of, of Ezra. Now, as we look at, at the first four verses, we're going to see God changing a hopeless situation into a hopeful situation. So let me begin with a story. I want to take you back to, uh, well, it's a long time ago probably the late 80s. Cindy and I and our four kids are at Fridays on a very crowded and loud Saturday night. Our son Caleb, who's uh, pretty active, pushes back on the table and his chair, his high chair, f falls back. And like I'm seeing this in slow motion, it's slowly going back. I go into dad mode. I rush over to Caleb. Caleb has fallen on the floor and the zipper on his jacket has fallen into his, has gone into his chin, like dug into his chin. I go pick him up, the zipper comes out, and blood comes out. And there was a nurse at the table next to us, and the nurse took, takes one look at Caleb and says, he needs stitches. So we bundle all of our kids up, and we go to Greater Baltimore Medical Center. And when we get in, and the, the intake staff sees Caleb, they, they, they think, uh, okay, front of the line. <laughs> Front of the line for you. So we go in, and the doctor says uh, to me, Dad, can you, can you hold your son down while we give him the shot and then start doing the stitches? I said, yeah. So 
I hold Caleb down, and Caleb's eyes go wide. He thrashes. He's very upset. I say, buddy, it's okay. It's okay. We got we to do this. And he's, he's thrashing, and then he relaxes under my weight. He relaxes. Guy sews up his chin, and I hold him. I say, buddy, I'm so sorry, but the doctor had to have you be really still while you got the stitches. Now, I don't remember exactly what Caleb said, but it was something like this. Dad, that's okay. I know you love me. I know you love me. Now, in that moment, Caleb knew two things about me. I was big. I could hold him down. He's way bigger than I am now. I was big, and I'm good. I'm big, and I'm good. And if we're going to encounter God's healing after a season of pain. We have to have a worldview about God. And that worldview is that God is big and God is good. And we see that in the first four chapters, uh, the first four verses of of Ezra. So let's begin with with Ezra's story. From a human standpoint, it looked as if there was no hope at all for the people of Israel. We start in verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Uh, that the word of the Lord might be fulfilled from Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout his whole kingdom, and he also put it in writing. Now, this book starts very unusually. It starts with the book, with the word and. And takes us back into the context of the book, and the context is pain. Now, why was it pain? The crux of the pain was this. Throughout the Old Testament, God said to Israel, look, if you will love me and obey me and follow me, you will flourish in your land. However, if you forsake me and go after false gods and become idolatrous, you will be taken captive and removed from your land. God said, your choice, love me, flourish, forsake me, and I will bring you into captivity for a season. This, this prediction is all throughout the Old Testament. Well, guess what? Israel disowned God. For starters, they fell in love with the gods of the surrounding nations. In fact, God says he's like a husband, and Israel is a young and beautiful bride. And Israel grows up into her womanhood, and she knows she's beautiful. She knows that she is is amazing. And so she gives herself to different lovers. Ezekiel, for instance, says this. She gives herself to the gods of Babylon and the gods of the Philistines and the gods of the Assyrians, gods like Baal and Marduk and Dagon and Bel, and she becomes an idolater. And God says, okay, my word's going to come to pass. In the book of Habakkuk, God says, I'm going to send a nation to come in. they got a weird language. They're going to remove you from your land. And in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar the Great besieges Jerusalem, and the people of Israel are taken off into captivity. There was another reason why they were taken into captivity. God said, what I want you to do is I want you to take every seventh year off. Okay, what I want you to do is I want you to work hard for six years, take the entire seventh year off. Look, if crops come into your fields in that seventh year, that's fine. You can eat of those fields, but I want you to take the seventh year off so that you know that I am your God. I am your provider. 
Israel never did that. They never took a sabbatical year. They didn't trust God, and they were greedy. And for at least those two reasons, God led the people of Israel into captivity. So Nebuchadnezzar the Great comes three times, 605 B.C., 597 B.C., 586 B.C. And by the, time, the third time he's come and besieged their land, the land is ravaged, the temple is destroyed, the best and the brightest of their children are removed into captivity, and they are without hope. Think about this for, for a second. Without the temple, there's no religion. Without the land, there's no crops to sustain the people. Without the children, there's no future. They were absolutely devastated. Now, if you look back in the 20th and 21st centuries, and you think about the horrible tragedies, you think about the Jewish Holocaust, you think about the purges under Stalin, you think about the Rwandan genocide, you think about the Indian Ocean tsunami of 2004, you think about the Haiti earthquake of 2014. These were catastrophic situations, and Israel in in 586 B.C., had a catastrophic annihilation. And if you were there in 586 B.C., you would have said, what hope is there for Israel? Like, they're going to go the way of the Hittites. They're going to go the way of the Hivites. Have you ever heard of those people? No. These guys have absolutely no hope. Now, I want to briefly bring this into the year 2019. Because many people today are in the exact same position. They've come to a place in life where some devastating thing has happened to them, and they're, they're in a place of, of no hope. could be something financially. It could be something physically. A diagnosis has been given, and there's, there's no hope. It could be that a dream has been crushed. Maybe you're like Fontaine in, in the musical Les Mis. You know, you, you had a dream. I dreamed a dream in times gone by. I won't sing it for you. I know you want me to, but I won't sing it for you. But at the end of that song, she says, my dream was turned to shame. And maybe, maybe that's, that's you. You've encountered something that's been just devastating. That, that happens in life. We live in a fallen world. There's one good thing about being in that place. And that is that you trust and depend upon the promises of God. And that's exactly what God does for Israel. God gives Israel two promises. Promise number one is Jeremiah 29, verse 10. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for your time in Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Wow. Jeremiah tells the people of Israel who've been deported to Babylon, look, it's only going to be 70 years. I'm going to put a boundary around my discipline of you. That boundary will be 70 years. And after 70 years, I will bring you back to Israel. And then comes most people's favorite verse in the Bible. If you look at gatewaybible.com, the favorite verse is Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. The context of Jeremiah 29, 11 is that the people have no hope. They're in Babylon. Their temple was destroyed. Their land decimated. Their kids were removed. Their holy books were taken away. What hope is there? God's promises. God's promises. And if you're in a place where you feel like hope has been removed, you always have God's presence and you always have God's promises.
and they force you to consider the promises of, of uh, the, the goodness of God and the promises of God. So here's, here's the, the first thing I, I just want you to know. Sometimes in life, hard things happen, and God's best stories often begin in pain, and they often begin in, in a wandering in, in the wilderness. So now we move from a story of pain to a story of hope. And God engineers a new beginning in, in really a most, a most amazing way. Let's go back to, back to verse 1. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he put it in writing. For you to understand uh, the rest of the story, you need to understand four characters. So let me introduce you to four characters. The first character is Isaiah. He's going to write a prophecy. The second character is Cyrus. He is the king of Persia. The third character is Josephus. He is a Roman historian. And the fourth character is a guy by the name of Zerubbabel. I'm going to help you pronounce that name in just a moment. If you understand these four characters, you understand that God miraculously brought hope where there was no hope. So here's the story. It begins with Isaiah, who his ministry was 740 to 680 B.C. And that's Raphael's painting, his famous painting of Isaiah the prophet. Well, here's what Isaiah says. I, the Lord, say of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be rebuilt. Stop there for a second. Wait a second. When Isaiah writes this, Jerusalem is doing just fine. The temple is doing just fine. The cities of Judah are doing just fine. That means he's prophesying that they will at one point be destroyed. And of course they were under Nebuchadnezzar. So that would, be, that would have been a shocking prophecy. Imagine somebody, somebody says, you know, the time will come where Bartles will be rebuilt. Will be rebuilt. It'll be rebuilt. Woola Rock will be rebuilt. Whoa, that, that, that means it's going to be destroyed. So he goes on, I, the Lord, say about Cyrus, who the heck is Cyrus? I mean, he's writing this 140 years before Cyrus was even born. I, the Lord, say about Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall fulfill my purpose. I say of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. We don't know who Cyrus is yet, but in the next chapter, Isaiah says more about Cyrus. Thus says the Lord to his anointed. You know, the Hebrew word for anointed is Mashiach or Messiah. Thus says the Lord to his Messiah, his anointed, Cyrus. Wait, Cyrus? Like this guy's going to be anointed by God to do something? What's he going to do? Cyrus is a guy whose right hand I have grasped. He's going to subdue nations before him and loose the belts of kings to open doors before him that the gates might not be closed. I call you by your name, Cyrus. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is none other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, Cyrus, though you do not know me, that the people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Isaiah is prophesying the name of a world leader before that world leader is born, and he's prophesying the policies of that world leader before that world, world leader ever takes his rule. Why is he doing that? The reason why is because God wants his people to be on the alert for his promises. God wants that same thing for you as well. God has given you hundreds, if not thousands of promises in the Bible. 
He wants you to know those promises so that you are on the alert. And if you go into a situation where there's no hope, you go back to those promises and you are alert to the fact that God wants to intervene in your situation. So the first person is Isaiah, the prophet, who prophesies 140 years before Cyrus comes in the scene. The second leader is Cyrus. Now, Cyrus is an interesting character. He's called Cyrus the Great. He rules from 559 to 500 BC. That's a very long rule for a world ruler. Go back to verse 1 or 2 through 4. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. He made a proclamation. He put the proclamation in writing. Okay, that's 140 years after Isaiah's prophecy. And here's the proclamation. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, and he's using the word Yahweh here, Yahweh, the God of the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And indeed, Cyrus ruled a, a kingdom from Turkey to India, roughly the size of the continental United States. This was a vast kingdom, thinking about all the kingdoms of the ancient world. He has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Didn't Isaiah just prophesy that? Yeah, he did. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. This is fascinating, because Cyrus is a pagan polytheist who knows enough about the biblical worldview to call God the God of heaven, but he still thinks that the God of heaven somehow resides in Jerusalem. He's writing about an inconsistent worldview as a polytheist who knows about uh, biblical revelation. Cyrus continues, let each survivor, and that would be survivor of the Babylonian captivity, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold with goods and with beasts, besides the freewill offerings for the house that is to be built in Jerusalem. So it's amazing. He says, I want the people of Israel to raise money, like we're talking about silver and gold and gifts in kind, so that the people who are going to rebuild the house in Jerusalem have the stuff by which to do it. Now, what's interesting about this particular decree is that multiple versions went out, and one of the versions is in the British Library, and it looks like this. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's written very intricately in the Akkadian language. It's a cuneiform language. And when you read this version, what you realize is that Cyrus is not a believer, but still a pagan polytheist, because this version says this. I translated this over the weekend so that you would... I'm kidding, I'm kidding. May all the gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities ask daily for Bel and Nebo, two gods, for a long life for me, and may they commend me to Marduk, his personal god, and may they say thus to these gods, Cyrus the king who worships you has settled you in a peaceful place. I endeavor to fortify, repair their dwelling places. 
So Cyrus isn't just going to send the people of Israel back to their homelands. He is going to resettle all the other nations whom he has conquered back to their homelands. Why is he going to do this? Is he just a nice guy? The reason why is because Cyrus realizes that if I send these people back to their indigenous lands and they till the lands and they produce crops, I can tax them. And now I have more money for my growing empire. You know, rulers like money. Rulers like taxes. And so, so that's exactly what he does. So now we have Isaiah prophesying about what Cyrus would do, and Cyrus does it. The question is, how did Cyrus get that idea? Because nobody in world history to that point had ever had that idea. Well, that leads us to a third guy. His name is Josephus. He lived from 37 AD to 100 AD. He is born four years after Jesus rises from the dead. And he's a fascinating character. Josephus was a general fighting the Romans up in Galilee in 67 AD. And Josephus loses a battle. He loses a battle. And so Josephus is enslaved. However, through a very weird set of circumstances, Josephus is not only released from his slavery, but he is granted Roman citizenship. He's given a lifelong pension, a retirement account, and he's given the opportunity to write history. So he writes the Jewish wars and the antiquities of the Jews, and he's a very good historian, and he writes about Cyrus. And here's here's what he says. After Cyrus defeats Babylon, and by the way, he did that on October 12th, 537 BC, when Cyrus defeats Babylon, the Jews in Babylon say, Cyrus, Cyrus, do you know that our Bible predicts that you will do what you've just done? Our Bible through Isaiah gives your name and it prophesies what you just did. Cyrus says, you're kidding me. No, it's right here. Let me see that. Cyrus takes the scroll and he reads Isaiah 44, Isaiah 45, and he says, well, I'll be darned. This was predicted before I was even born. That's amazing. Huh. So what does your prophecy say that I did? Huh. It says that I'm going to send the people back to the land to work the land to repair the temple and and rebuild the cities. I'm going to do that. Now, look, I don't know if that's true or not. Josephus is not, is not the Bible, okay? But Josephus writes that that's exactly why Cyrus got the information to send the people back to the land. If that's true, God used his word to lead a pagan king to follow his word. It's amazing. Josephus says that's what took place. So think about the characters so far in the story. We have a, we have a Jew named Isaiah, the prophet. We have a Persian named Cyrus the Great, and we have a Roman named Josephus, okay? One more person, and we start to complete the story. This person's name is Zerubbabel. Okay, now you need to know how to pronounce this name. Zerubbabel. Repeat after me. Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. It's a great name. The name Zerubbabel means the kid from Babylon, or it means the Babylonian kid the kid from Babylon. You know, you know what, if, what if you had a child and you named the kid, what are you going to name you Barshan? 
Uh, that's what they did to, for Zerubbabel, the kid from Babylon. And uh, <clears throat> this guy grows up with a big cloud over his entire life, a big handicap, a big problem. And the big problem with Zerubbabel is that his grandfather was a very bad guy. And there was a prophecy about his grandfather. This man, Jehoiachin, the grandfather of Zerubbabel, the second to last king of Judah, Jehoiachin is a despised and broken pot. How would you like somebody to say that about your grandfather? He and his children have been cast into a land that they did not know, which was Babylon. Thus says the Lord, write this man, Jehoiachin, Zerubbabel's grandfather, down as childless. It's as if this man had no children, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Zerubbabel was the descendant of a king, and God says, Zerubbabel, you're not going to succeed as a leader. Not going to happen. How would you like that? So, so, so supposing somebody wrote a, a best-selling book, number one on Amazon, that said something bad about your grandfather and all of his descendants, including you. That'd be tough. That's Zerubbabel. And yet, God is going to use Zerubbabel. Uh, if you look at Ezra 2, verse 2, notice something. Now, these were the people of the province who came up out of that ca captivity in Babylon returning to Jerusalem and Judah, these came with who? The kid from Babylon. Like Zerubbabel is chosen by Cyrus to lead that group to Jerusalem. Now, everybody could read the Bible. They could read that Zerubbabel had a, had a cloud hanging over him. So what kind of leader is Zerubbabel? A humble leader. God uses a humble, broken leader to lead his people back home from captivity. But notice something else about Zerubbabel. He is an ancestor of Jesus. Matthew 1, verse 12. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of who? Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. So God uses a broken leader, a humble leader, a leader with a cloud over his name and life to lead 50,000 people from Babylon back to Jerusalem. So four people, Isaiah, Cyrus, Josephus, Zerubbabel. Let's take all these loose ends and let's tie all of these loose ends together. God's chosen nation had been crushed. The temple was demolished. The city was devastated. The children were taken away. Israel has, humanly speaking, no hope, no future. And yet, that's never true with God, because God always has his promises. And God had promises for the people of, people of Israel. And Isaiah predicted that Cyrus's name, he predicts Cyrus's name before he's born. Isaiah predicts Cyrus's foreign policies before his rule. Cyrus enacts those policies 140 years later. Josephus tells us that Cyrus did this because he heard God's word. And who is it that leads him back? A broken man with a shady past. Who but God could have engineered that? When there is, seems to be absolutely no hope, God breaks through. And that leads us to the main idea of, of, this, of this story 
Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, set within its context. The key idea is about God's sovereignty and our hopeless situation. And the main idea is this. When all hope seems lost, we go back to the promises of God. And then we stand on those promises. And we trust in God's surprise solution. Here's the cool thing about God. God loves to engineer surprise solutions. How surprising is it that Isaiah gives the name of a guy 140 years before he's born? How surprising is it that God would prophesy against a man's grandfather, but then use that grandson to do a major work? How surprising is that, that God would rebuild that land after it had been devastated? God always has a surprise solution. So you stand on God's promises, you anticipate a surprise solution, and then you do, you do the next thing. What's the next thing God's called you to do? It might be going to work the next day. It might be changing a dirty diaper. It might be cleaning the dishes after a big meal. You, you, you do the next thing, trusting that God will engineer his surprise solution in your hopeless situation. Let me unpack this idea just, just a bit further. I want to direct your attention to a particular detail in Cyrus's edict. He calls God Yahweh, the God of heaven. Now, you could pass over that and think, ah, no big deal. That is a big deal. Because the people of Israel had forgotten about the infinite personal nature of God. And the people of Israel, by going after the false gods, got a skewed worldview. And the skewed worldview was that, yeah, God's our God, but I mean, Assyrians, they worship their God, and the Babylonians worship their God. Our God's like a localized, little localized deity. They had a very small view of God. And then in Babylon, they go back to the scriptures. They realize that God is a big God. He's a, he's a good God. And they encounter the presence of God in Babylon, and now they realize God is the God of the heavens. He's everywhere. It's, and, you know, we sometimes have that same problem. We, we think about God, we think, well, I don't know what God really is. I mean, maybe he's out there in outer space someplace. Maybe he's like somewhere beyond Jupiter. Maybe he's out by the Andromeda galaxy and he's not very near me. He's like way, way out there. And what we forget is that God is both imminent, he's very near, and he's transcendent, he's very far. God's Transcendence means that he is way beyond the boundaries of the universe, and his eminence means that he's right here, right next to me all the time. He's omnipresent. God occupies both the space in the seat next to you, or if you're sitting next to somebody, the space between your seat. He's that near, but he's also way beyond the physical boundaries of our universe. And the people of Israel, they caught that in captivity. So the word God of heaven never appears prior to the captivity. It appears all the time after the captivity in the Bible. They learned something about, about God. He's big and he's good. And that bigness and that goodness together allowed them to see something fresh and new. Notice how David does this in Psalm 139. Where should I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Now David gives us dimensions. Upward, if I send to heaven, you're there. Then downward, if I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. 
then horizontally left and right. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell on the uttermost parts of the sea, that's, that's east. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall guide me. God is present everywhere at once. Israel forgot that, and you and I can forget that in pain, can't we? I've heard people say, I pray, it just doesn't seem as if God is here. Now look, I understand that feeling, but you have to crush what you, that, that sorry to say this, you got to crush that feeling with the truth. And the truth is, it's not about whether you feel God is here or not. It's about the fact that God is actually, in fact, here. And the challenge is for you to encounter his presence by reckoning that presence to be real. A lot of people don't do that. They have a skewed view of God, a shrunken, small, little, puny view of God. And they have no hope in their pain because they can't muster correct thoughts about God. So if you, want to, if you want to move back toward hope in the midst of a painful situation, you must elevate your view of God. That's what happened to the people in the exile. Now let's look at some takeaways. What are some habits we can use for a dark night of the soul? Habit number one is this. Um, listen to the biography of someone who encountered a dark night. Now why do I say that? When you're going through a dark night of the soul, you can tend to think, I'm the only person who's ever gone through this. In the history of the Christian faith, nobody has gone through what I'm going through right now. And that's not true. Because a lot of people have gone through, gone through what you're going through. And so the challenge is, find, find a biography that features somebody who's gone through something that you're going through right now. Now, we live in the golden era of biographies and memoirs, and we live in the golden era of reading biographies and memoirs because if you go to audible.com, there are dozens and dozens and dozens out there written by followers of Jesus. And the thing I love about a lot of these memoirs is there is pain, there is wilderness, and there's resolution. And you can learn from that. Some of the ones that have really impacted me recently, one by Jack Deere called Even in Our Darkness. In fact, I kind of stole the title for the message this morning from his book. This is my, my verbal footnote. Um, Even in Our Darkness is written by Jack Deere. It's a, it's a wonderful book about a guy who lost his father to suicide and his son to suicide. And it was, it was as if death was part of his identity Suicide of a dad, suicide of a son, horrible situation. His wife became an addict after their son died. And he's trying to hold his life and her life together. It's a great book, hard book to read, wonderfully written, beautifully written. But anybody who's, who's encountered a struggle in their family can read this book and find hope in the midst of darkness. Another one is the book by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was a, an English preacher in the Victorian era. Uh, for most of his adult life, he lived with chronic depression and chronic pain. A lot of it stem, stemmed from what we would call a PTSD event that took place where many people were killed in his church through a horrible situation. And 
this book, the Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, is about how he dealt with his anxiety, depression, and despair, and did ministry, and gave people hope. But he ministered out of his out of his his pain. You can read C.S. Lewis's book, uh, Surprised by Joy. That's a fabulous book. It talks about the pain of his childhood and the pain that brought him to Christ. And then couple that with a grief observed, which is C.S. Lewis then responding to God after his wife dies. His wife was a wonderful gift to him at the end of his life, and she dies. Lewis is devastated. You read those, both those books together, you get a feel for hope in the midst of a dark place. Amy Carmichael uh, has a biography called A Chance to Die by Elizabeth Elliot. Um, Amy Carmichael was an amazing Christian missionary to China, but Amy Carmichael goes through a devastating injury, and she is in chronic physical pain for the rest of her life. She becomes addicted to pain medication, and yet, and yet, even in that place, God uses her in an astonishing way to encourage young women who were removed from sex slavery. It's an amazing book. Uh, you could read The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom, who goes through the darkness of the Holocaust. It's a story about her finding God's light in the darkest of all places. And then God's speaking to her about what she would do when she gets out. And she does it. And she has a powerful impact on people. I'm just telling you, it's really important if you're going through a dark night of the soul that you don't think, um, it's just, nobody else is going through this, just me. Read a biography. Now, second application is this. Um, get clear about God's sovereignty. Get clear about His sovereignty. It's really important that you realize that God is sovereign over your darkness. He knew what you would face. He allowed what you did face to take place. He was with you in what you faced. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Now, what that means is that he, knew, he knows everything about your pain, and yet he still allowed it. So let me define sovereignty to you from a sufferer's perspective. Sovereign, sovereignty is God's kindness with a plan. Sovereignty is God's kindness with a plan. My dad was sovereign over my schooling when I was a kid. I had a bump in high school. My dad said, Rod, you're going to the Lawrenceville School in Lawrenceville, New Jersey, and you're going to get good grades so you can get into a good college. I didn't want to go to Lawrenceville. I did it, but I didn't want to go. I hated that school. For nine months, all I could think about was getting out of that school. But in my father's sovereignty, there was kindness with a plan. Because that school instilled in me a love for learning that has lasted up until this day. When I visited Lawrenceville many years ago with my father, I said, Dad, I hated it when I was here, but I thank you a thousand times over for sending me here because it transformed my life. I am a lover of learning because you sent me there. In my father, there was sovereignty, but it was kindness 
with a plan. When you go through a dark night of the soul, God is sovereign, and you have to think about him as being kind with a plan. I've talked to a lot of people who've gone through some terrible dark nights of the soul. And I ask people, so if you had it to do, I mean, looking back on it, do you wish it had never happened? And hardly anybody says, yes, I wish it didn't happen. It was terrible. Almost everybody will say to me, I wouldn't want to go through it again. But having gone through it, I'm glad it happened because it changed my life. Now, maybe, maybe a few people say, oh, I, no, no, I wish it hadn't happened. Most people will say, you know what? Hard to go through. Wouldn't want to go through it again. But having gone through it, I can see God's goodness coming out of the things that I suffered. When I talk to them about that goodness, sometimes I hear stories about them being healed instantly. Sometimes I hear stories about people being healed gradually. Sometimes I hear people tell stories about being healed in a way that was different than the way they thought they would be healed. But it's always God's kindness with a plan. And we're way over time, so I'll give you, give you one more. Uh, if you are going through a dark night of the soul, get help. Get help. You need the body of Christ. You need the body of Christ. You can't do this yourself. If you need help, I encourage you to come to Celebrate Recovery tomorrow night. Because you're going to hear Cindy's story. And Cindy's story is a, a wonderful story about the road that she went on that transformed our family. And I'm super grateful for the role that she had in our family. Um, we went through some, some days that were hard. And through the choices that my wife made, some really cool things have come out of that. Let's stand for a closing prayer.